Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to Impact the World. And my guest today is Sark, who for almost the past 40 years has been a force for good and transformation in the world of creativity, books, art. And one of the reasons I was so delighted to get to speak to Sark is a couple of years ago, when she first came across my radar, I went to her website and I went to her store and I bought this bought a few posters actually but one of the posters I bought is called how to be a happy writer and it has sat on the side of my piano for the last few years and so getting to speak to her about creativity but also how we are creating our life and the habits that we can cultivate to maintain our connection to magic our connection to the miraculous and as you'll learn during this conversation Sark is not at all a stranger to the lows of life or the really deep challenging times that ultimately transform you but when they're happening they can feel deathly or hard to overcome. So this was a fantastic conversation and I think you'll really enjoy what Sark has to share and how you can use it to create a transformation or creation in your life. And as ever, if you are a fan of the show and you enjoy what we put out here, it really helps us if you are able to subscribe, rate or review over on Apple Podcasts because it helps us reach more people with the shows that we create. And as usual, we will put notes in the show notes as to how you can find today's guest, Sark, at her website, planetsark.com. Sark, it is so nice to have you here on the show. I was just sharing with you that I have had one of your posters on the side of my piano for the last two, two and a bit years. So to get to sit and be with you right now is just, is just fantastic. Thank you. Oh, you are so welcome. And I know people will want to know which poster. They will. And it's uh, the How to Be a Happy Writer poster. And I actually bought that one because at the time I was returning to songwriting uh, which was something I'd kind of not really given much energy and time to for many years. So I stuck it on the on the piano as as an emblem and as a symbol, and it and it's fabulous. It worked. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> we released an album last year, so it worked. Thank you, Sark. And congratulations. Thank you, thank you. So one of the things that I'm most excited that you are our guest today for is because Impact the World is really all about creators and the fact that we're all creating our life and we can be creative people and we can create things. My intent with the show was to inspire other creators to do their thing. Now that is exactly what you have directly been doing for almost 40 years with all of the work that you've done and your 17 books and all of the posters and the art. So I'm curious first, before we dive into some of the elements of the work that you do, how are you doing right now because we're speaking february 2021 at the end of kind of an unbelievable year that all of us have been through on the planet i'm just curious how you as a creator and as a person how are you doing right now in 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 this moment yes thank you so much and i want to say how um 
blessed I am to have been living this creative life for all of these years, because in some way it prepared me absolutely for a pandemic. Mm. And I had no idea that it was doing that. You know, I was not only working at home, I started teaching on Zoom 10 years ago. And I um, designed my life to be such that I didn't need to go anywhere very often. I didn't, I, I'm a, I'm a, you could say I'm an introvert with high extrovert skills. So my orbit was perfectly lovely for me. I mean, and I want to acknowledge anyone listening who's had to stay in and hasn't been able to exercise or, so I just want to acknowledge that because I'm aware living in San Francisco where I do, I have a tremendous amount of privilege to be out in beauty in nature every single day. And so I'm able to do that and I do that and then I gather the riches and I bring them back and alchemize them and then I share them. Mm. Um, so, and of course, and on the challenging side, I've definitely had more dealings with my anxiety than I'd ever really had. And I've been um, given a lot of information about what's going on. I've been taken on tours. I mean, you know this as someone who channels energy, I channel Sark. And I've been taken all over the world and shown what's going on and what what is needing to happen. And so I was getting a lot of downloads and a lot of information, which can be a bit tiring, mm. you know, because it would occupy my whole dream time. And then I would wake up with all this. Um, but again, creating courses and mentoring programs to I, I love mentoring people in all forms through my books, through private mentoring that I do. I love mentoring people and making dreams real. That's like my, it started very early in my life and it continues to this day. And um, I feel now in the pandemic time, it's even more juicy and rich. And it, it's, people are being called to themselves and their uniqueness more than ever, you know this. Yeah. People are being called to rise and I've been called to rise, I'm writing more often, more deeply, more transparently. I was already writing vulnerably. I was publishing all my vulnerable journals for all these years, but now it's taken on an even larger import. Mm. It just feels like in the most exciting way, there's no time to waste. Like, yeah. like now is the time. That's, yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah, so true. And I'm curious if you don't mind sharing, because I'm sure watchers and, and listeners will, would be curious about you shared some of the downloads that you've been getting about what's going on around the world is are there any parts of that 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 would be good to share well honestly I think your energy transmissions are so in line I mean wh whenever I hear one of yours I'm like yep yep check 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 you know I don't think I have new things to say except um to trust and continue I mean you know, that's the, you know, it, it's, it's so tempting to collapse and stay collapsed. It's so tempting to go to despair and then just not get out. Yeah. It's so tempting to, to fall to anxiety and just let it run everything. You know, it's so to, to do for people to do their transformational processes, whatever those are and whatever their spirit and soul align with and get even more, clear about asking for help, receiving help. I like to say, ask, ask again, ask differently. Like 
don't just ask and then scurry away and say, see, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it didn't happen, ask again. And if it still doesn't happen, ask differently. You may need to ask a different person. You may need to ask more nakedly. You may need to ask with more enthusiasm. You may need to ask more calmly. You know, you may need to ask with less attachments. You may, I mean, there's, there's a whole panoply there. So true. I remember one of the things that kind of shocked me at the time, although I reflected on it and it made sense was when my guides 20 years ago said, you have to ask for help. The universe will always help. Angelics will help, but you have to ask for it. We can't always interfere and cross into your timeline. You have to be ready to receive. And and I love that. Ask again, ask a different way. It's so true. Yes. And I also want to say that for people who are recovering perfectionists, recovering procrastinators, um, people pleasers, um, overachievers, any of this kind of realm, which a lot of creative people are, it's, it's even more important that you learn how to ask and receive because the, the, I, I like to say most people have PhDs in giving and they're not in kindergarten with receiving. And they ask very little. In fact, people pride themselves on not asking much. I don't ask for much. They'll, they'll start things with that sentence that, that, you know, I don't ask for much. And so I always stop and I said, you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, having said that, I wanna say that I am shy. I don't ever wanna ask. I resist asking every single time. I try to get out of asking. I try to find some other way to do it so I don't have to ask. My, a, a dear friend asked me the other day, uh, well, you don't, but you don't avoid. She was talking about admitting that she was avoiding. And she said, but you don't avoid. I said, who, who do you think I am? I said, I'm avoiding everything that I can possibly avoid. What, you know, are you absolutely out of your mind? You know, like I just had this big outburst because it's tempting to project onto, you know, this leaders or teachers, it's tempting to project onto them Hmm. that they don't have the anxiety, that they're not scared to ask, that they're confident, that they're marching around accomplishing all the things and you know they're they're just happy to ask oh another great chance to ask yeah and i just want to say that you can ask really badly and it can still work you can ask partially imperfectly poorly badly conceived you can someone asked me to write a forward for their book recently as they all people do all the time and she just stumbled and fumbled and said i i just need to ask you I mean, I'm kind of scared to ask you, but I just need to. I mean, I don't know. Would you possibly ever possibly be willing to? I mean, you know, and, and finally got it out. And I said, yes. And, and she, oh, she, she nearly fainted. You know? That's so good. But it's funny because this reminds me of boundaries. Like boundaries is something I, I've, I've had to learn and learn and learn and learn. And therefore, I ended up, as, as is often the way, teaching it too. And one of the things that I learned and one of the things I will teach people is when you first start giving yourself boundaries, you will do it really badly. You will do it really inelegantly. It won't come out of your mouth like some Hollywood speech, you know, that's been beautifully crafted by writers. You're going you're gonna to mess it up. But if you're afraid to do it badly, we, we never get started because gradually, the more our nerves kind of adjust to the whole thing, we're not running the anxiety that makes us fumble and lose our center. So, you know, we've kind of got to get in there and 
do a messy job at first, if we ever want to get to a place where that has become a bit more known to us or a bit more in us. Exactly. And you can name, name the fear. You can say, I'm really nervous to ask you this. And would you be willing to write the forward for my book? Yeah. You know? And all of a sudden, it, it, it all comes down from a tangle of things into, a, into some kind of clear ask. Beautiful. Well, I would love to go back in time. Uh, there was something that I, there was something that I, <laughs> that I read. That was on me your, going back in time. You know, I know it was very good. Um, uh, so your name is Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy, which is an amazing name. And I read this morning, um, prepping for today, that you were named Sark by Henry Miller, the author and the artist. How did that come about? Yes. Well, I lived outside of the money system. I had, a, well, first I'll start with this. I had a grandfather who was a wonderful mentor to me. And at 14, he said, do every job you can think of doing so you know what you don't want to do the rest of your life. Brilliant. So being an overachiever, even then, I got three jobs when I was 14 and kept a little notebook and wrote down the jobs. They didn't last very long. I was either fired or I left. But I went on from the ages of 14 to 26 to have 250 jobs. If it lasted more than four hours, I counted it. <laughs> and I did the weirdest jobs and I found a lot of things I didn't want to do anymore. And I learned a lot about service and humility. And I learned what work was in some ways. I mean, I'll admit I was, again, a privileged person. So I was able to quit I, and I didn't mm -hmm. have a family to support. So I had a lot of latitude there. But at age 26, I decided to opt out of capitalism altogether and live on barter and trade, which I did for 10 years. This was before this was popular. I was going to say, yeah. This was not normal. You know, this, was not, this was not being discussed in the <laughs> culture. And, you know, um, so I had to learn to ask a lot. I had to le learn to ask for housing, to ask for, I was trading, like I'll teach your kids swimming if I can live in your pool house. You know, one time I lived in the Bahamas in a penthouse in exchange for teaching a, a kid swimming. You know, so there were the, all these kinds of um, arrangements and scenarios. But um, during that time, I was, I'm a, a voluminous reader. I probably read more than anyone or as many, I read a lot. Let's just put it that way. So I was reading, I had started as a child reading my way through the library and reading a book a day and winning a clock. You know, like the first grade teacher said, you can win a clock if you read a book a day. Uh -huh. So I'm the only one that did it. And I got the clock and I was so excited. But during this time, I was reading a lot to support my view of living outside the capitalist system and being a creator. And the person that came into my view, well, many people came into my view, but one of them was Henry Miller. And at first I judged him as a misogynist. I'm a, I'm a humanist with feminist leanings, let's call it like that. And I was kind of horrified by him. And his counterpart, Anais Nin, who I read all of her diaries, she, in my opinion, deserved to be as famous or more famous than him. But he got all the attention and was writing these books that had a lot of sexuality and a lot of things, but I was more interested in his metaphysical writings. He wrote books like Stand Still Like the Hummingbird and, you know, he, he really got very metaphysical. 
And so I read everything Henry Miller wrote and had published. It was over 50 books. And I even went to the University of Minnesota and read his manuscripts wearing white gloves, which they gave you, and turning the thin pages of his, you know. And in his books, he, he would throw up his arms and say, so I owe everyone, you know, I, I'm in debt and I owe everyone. And he would make these proclamations about, about his own funding for his arts. And, you know, there was just a lot to learn from him. And so I, I didn't know it, but he died um, before, this was in 1982, he appeared in my dream. And he said, your name will be Sark and your artwork will be famous before your writing. And I thought, I'm not going to be Sark. That's a dumb name. And I wrote it in my journal and I put it aside. And so he shows up. I didn't, again, I didn't know he had already died. So he was dead and he was appearing in my dreams. So he came in the dream two weeks later and said, your name will be Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy. And my name at the time was Susan Kennedy. And so I thought, this is perfect. I'll add Ariel Rainbow. I love that. So I went to court to make it legal. And the judge I'm convinced wasn't real. He was very theatrical. He had hair that was like an ice cream cone that went up into a little tip on the top of his head. And he was, as I say, very theatrical. He said, is there anyone who knows why this woman should not be named Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy? And of course, nobody said anything. And he banged his gavel and said that it was done. And then I looked down, I had been doodling on a piece of paper while he was talking and realized that Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy spelled Sark. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I got it. And That's I be brilliant. decided to become Sark and to embody Sark. I didn't really know what Sark was. I didn't know it was an entity. I didn't know there was a spirit. I didn't, and I just became Sark. And so from 1982 until today, I've been really sharing the Sark spirit and showing people the Sark in them. You know, and I say to people, this, this Sark spirit, this creative spirit is in everyone. Hmm. and that's been my greatest honor and joy to share that's beautiful thank you for sharing and and i, I want to just also go back to a story that you share of when you were 10 uh, because to me this speaks to the power of art the healing of art and just the power of art you said you had a best friend called mr boggs at the time who was 80 years old and he went to the hospital and you would send in stories and letters and and he yeah. said that it kept him alive could you tell us a little bit about that yeah well one of the difficult challenging times of my childhood was that i was molested by an older brother yeah. so he had been my best friend and then he was being molested by a neighbor and then he in turn molested me so i was i was desperate to escape this this system i had a great you know i had a wonderful family i had a family that loved me but this was going on and no one knew it. And it was so awful and scary. And so I started finding ways to be out of the house and away. And one of them was meeting Mr. Boggs, who was a neighbor. And I started doing wheelies in his driveway. Uh, and he came out and saw me and said, you're my twirly friend, and invited me in and was turned out to be another mentor, really, and became my best friend. I was 10 and he was 80. And he bought me a microscope and a telescope. He wanted to teach me to look close and to look far. Mm, wow. And then he tried to teach me to play chess, but I was too impatient. <laughs> and, then, and then after 
I don't know, maybe a year of daily visits, my mom said, you need to understand Mr. Boggs is very sick and he's going in the hospital and he might not come back out. And I said, well, then I need to write and create something for him every day so he knows how loved he is. So every day for a month, I made these special crooked packages and wrote him maps and, you know, I mean, I just completely poured my heart into these creations and sent them to the hospital. And then he did get out and he said, I think you saved my life. He said, no one else called or wrote while I was in there and I had to get out to see you. And I promptly ran in the house and said, mom, I'm supposed to be a beacon of hope and write books for the world. And she said, eat your peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> you know, she was supportive, but she didn't really quite understand what was going on. But that wonderful grandfather that I mentioned, who was my mentor, had listened very carefully to me. I think he must have known that there was, you know, difficulties in the family. And, you know, so he, he asked me to be the family reporter on family vacations and to write about what happened on these vacations and then come home and perform it for he and my grandmother in their living room. So I just gathered, I just scooped up all the miracle adventures and came home and performed them. So this was like the beginnings of my writing and teaching as I do today. And then he did something even more powerful. I had said that I wanted to write, start writing books, but I didn't have, I didn't feel like I could do it in the house. And he, so I'm standing on the front lawn with my best friend, Missy, and a flatbed trailer comes slowly past with a tiny house on the back. And he had had a house built for me, a tiny house. Wow. And it was being delivered to my backyard, to my driveway. It had a Dutch door and sliding glass windows and electricity and a linoleum floor. And I promptly moved in and wrote my first book. Wow. Wow. Um, and yeah. you also, so you, I, I've heard you refer to the magic cottage in San Francisco. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, Which, this was, yeah, this was my magic. This was like cottage. the precursor, right? Yes. This was the tiny magic cottage in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in fact, when I found the Magic Cottage in San Francisco, those who know me well that knew about the cottage said, this is like the, a grown-up version of the Magic Cottage. I mean, of the playhouse. It was called my playhouse. And yeah. so they would, they said that. And I, it, it's just so funny. But yeah, so that first book was called Mice from Mars. And it was a very thinly disguised abuse story about a mouse that comes from Mars and then is kind of tortured by humans and goes back to Mars. Hmm. And um, I like to say that the art in it is not very different than the art I do now. Yeah, and we have some of that art behind you. And again, this takes me back to your poster because one of the things that I loved about the How to Be a Happy Writer poster was the art of it. And earlier you shared that Henry Miller in The Dream had said your art would become known before your writing. And, and one of the stories I love is that your cat Jupiter, tell us how your cat Jupiter helped you sell two and a half million copies of the How to Be an Artist poster. Yes, let's show. Yes, fabulous. This yes, is great. This, this is the poster. I'll, I'll save some of the phrases on it in a minute, but I had... I have always kept journals and these journals were very much like the books I publish now. They're, they're illustrated, they have quotes, they're, someday I might publish these journals, but they, they, were, they were always written with an eye to share. And um, so I wrote in there, 
how I was living my life. I had moved into the magic cottage with a dollar and I had to make up a story to get the cottage. And, and this person came for tea and said, um, you know, how are you living these days? And I said, well, this is how I try to live. And I said, stay loose, learn to watch snails, invite someone dangerous to tea, make little signs that say yes and post them all over your house make friends with freedom and uncertainty. And then it goes on for about 30 more multicolored phrases. Um, swing as high as you can on a swing set by moonlight. And the, my tea guest said, oh, that is the best. That needs to be a poster. And I said, that's a good idea. And I tore the page out of my journal and put it on the wall and said, there, now it's a poster. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he wisely said, um, I mean, for the world. And then I said what so many people have said to me over all these years, I wouldn't know how to do that. Yeah. And then he said to me, well, somebody does. And then I said to him, well, I wouldn't know how to find that somebody. I mean, this is how we block. This is how mm -hmm. we don't ask. This totally. is how we stop it. This is, this is how we do it. So everyone listen. This is how it's done. If you want to know how not to do something, you listen to me. I wouldn't know how to do that. And I wouldn't know how to find someone to do that. That's the surefire way to not do anything. And it's so okay. interesting that our desire or our vision is often immediately followed by the stop signs and the voices of it's not possible. So you have to just kind of push through them and ignore them. Yes. And I also teach ways to let them be without having to ignore and yeah. also then not letting them run the show yeah um and so i then you know as i often do lie down because i didn't know what to do so i laid down and i went i think it was a nap and jupiter my wonderful black cat was very young at the time was had moved in with me in the magic cottage i'd never had a cat i didn't know what cats were got up on his hind legs and peeled the poster off the wall. And it woke me up with a whoosh. And I said, Jupiter, stop that. And I carefully fixed it back up on the wall. He did that three more times over three days before I thought, maybe Jupiter is trying to say something. Yeah. <laughs> and I took the poster to a store that I knew was metaphysical and that they had a catalog. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe they want it and I could go ask them. So I took the crooked page with the torn side and I brought it there. And the person that was in charge looked at it and said, well, this is very strange and crooked. And what does invite someone to dangerous to tea even mean? And I said, well, it means taking chances. It means seeing what will come. And uh, he said, all right, well, we'll give it a try. Don't expect anything. And I said, well, I've been living on barter and trade for a long time. I'm not expecting anything. You know, like I'm just, I'm curious. I want to see if people want this. Well, two days later, there was a call and there was an order for 200 posters. And I thought that was great until I realized that I had to handwrite them oh. because I had said they were handmade. So I got out my markers and I got paper and I hand wrote these 40 whatever phrases on there. And I was 
I literally thought, I hope nobody else orders. <laughs> and the next day came an order for 500. I got pretty scared and I did, I think I wrote, hand wrote 300 of them. And at the end I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't hand write these. And so I looked and I saw that it said handmade. And I thought, okay. So I got creative and I got high quality color Xerox and I hand tore the edges of that. And then I mounted it onto French rag paper and hand and can colored the edges of that. It was still a lot of handwork, but it was a piece I was proud of and it was beautiful and it felt worth the money and I was happy to do it. And I became a little factory in my magic cottage. Well, actually I borrowed the neighbor's garage and I had to dash out of there whenever they came home so they wouldn't know I was in there. I had spray mount that was so thick on my goggles that I would crash into things as I was trying to get out of the, the garage space. And I made 11,000 by hand. And at the same time, I was channeling 18 other posters on 18 other subjects, how to be really alive, how to really love a child, how to forgive your father, how to relax about money, um, I, I don't even remember all of them, you know, ways to be with angels, um, just, you know, all of these posters. And I thought, there's no way I can do all this. I better start a company. And, and friends have teased me. They're like, why did you start a company? Like, why wouldn't you say I need to find a printer or I need to find a manager or, you know, like, and I said, because I had a vision of books and of speaking and of, um, going around the world and I knew that the books wanted to really be out in a big way and I felt the company would support that. So the company at that time was called Camp Sark and I had the most wonderful team that helped produce over 200 products that went around the world. I taught and mentored around the world. I wrote a best-selling book every single year for 18 years, hmm. um, which was, <laughs> you know, there's a whole stories about that, but, um, so that was how that was how it started, and now I don't even remember your your initial question. Well, we were talking we were talking about because I read in your bio how the poster went on to sell two and a half million copies, which is pretty phenomenal. Oh. And then that poster, "How to Be an Artist," went on to be printed. Of course, after my eleven thousand handmade ones, it went on to be printed millions of times. It went on to be in Time Magazine. It was in major motion pictures. It's in all these dorm rooms. It's in all. I mean. I mean, it just went just, he, you know, and because it's my statement that we're all artists, it's called how to be an artist. And it could have been called how to be an artist of life because we're all artists and we're all creative. And it's the way we've, the way we've translated that word is such a just both creative and artist is such a disservice. Yeah. And you know this because we divide people up into not creative, not artists, and accountants are creative. Parents are the most creative people on the planet. You know, every every range you take anything is is there's opportunity to be creative, to think creatively, to move creatively, to cause creation of something new. So I'm passionate about that subject. Like, it's yeah. funny because your poster that I have, "How to Be a Happy Writer," one of the first things I thought about it was, you know, this is how to be a happy creator as well. You know that. And I, I want to share something about that poster. I think what we're going to do is we're going to bring it up on the screen. Just for people who haven't seen your posters, I think there were two things that really hit me about when I saw your posters. Number one, I was delighted 
that you had illustrated them, that they're colorful, that they're playful, that they're, you know, so, so simply and so simple and wonderful. And some of the things that you'd written on this poster are definitely things, some of them, that I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great confirmation of something I know, but you, the economy of your words and the way you phrase things, it would be the kind of thing I'd be sat in my beanbag, which was next to the piano in, in our old house. And I would just turn and I would see the poster and I would just pick one of the windows. So for example, I mean, some of my favorites on this poster, um, resisting writing is actually harder than writing. I mean, anyone who's created or written, that's so true. Um, allow your writing to be written. All writing needs a human channel to bring it down to earth. That's you. You cannot know the effect your stories may have. I mean, that's something I teach because that's something I've, I've learned. Um, start tinier, start more often now. Action before inspiration, begin. I mean, I could do all of them, but um, it's, it's gold and it's, and it's brilliant and it's accessible and it's quick. And yeah, so I, it's lovely to kind of learn more about all of the posters that you did. And I'm not surprised they're all over the world. Yeah. Well, I always felt like posters were like pages of books that got free, <laughs> you know, because which is true for you in your case. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I I wrote books deliberately to be like ripe fruit, so you could open it and take a bite anywhere and get nourishment of some kind. You know, you didn't have to follow the linear path. You know, I'm I'm very much a believer of the nonlinear. Um, so many more things could be so much more fun if we would get off the linear it's true and, you know there's totally. there's so much more joy and delight to have that people than people are giving themselves yeah yeah and it's it's not i think often the it's funny we just finished this course called rebirth and one of the big themes in rebirth that, that kept coming through whenever i would channel was they talked about activating joy in our life funny we have I don't, I think the sun is blowing it out here, but this actually says joy. Oh, I couldn't me. see. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and, and the, the power of joy practices and how we have to initiate and practice joy in our life and how that will infuse everything. Um, so yeah, I, I hear you on that. That's so true. And, and to allow it, mm -hmm. to allow joy. You, we can do a lot of great work joyfully. We, we do not need to suffer to, you know, over-focus on work to get so serious, you know, is, is depleting of the joy that we actually need yeah. to live and to even have the reason why we're even doing the work. Yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I think one of the most powerful, one of the most powerful teaching examples you've given the world and have gone through yourself is dealing with loss and you know you're I read something this morning which I didn't know I knew about your book Succulent Wild Love with Dr. John Waddle who was also your fiance but I didn't know this piece it said Sark had one big secret wish overcoming her fears to commit to an intimate life partnership so this was before you and John met so yeah I'd love to know a little about that and also to share with us the story of that book and John and yeah I I originally I, I remember when I first started I had a midlife suicide attempt which thankfully did not succeed and it caused me to really start therapy I mean I dabbled a bit 
but this was a full-on Jungian psychotherapy that was deep and went on for 14 years and really helped me um, help me claim myself back and my you know and I hadn't had I hadn't had um, what could be called like nourishing healthy relationships intimate partnerships really I I specialized in long distance ones I spent some time you know I just done all the things that I never had that full on, I'm in love, I'm gonna live with you, I'm gonna do my life with you. I yeah. hadn't had that. And I was so grateful to do that therapy and to be mentored in releasing all the, releasing and learning about, not just releasing, but learning about the places in me that didn't believe that was possible for me. I mean, when I started in therapy, I said, I don't wanna be this big creative head that just makes all these incredible things, but then has this limited personal intimate life. Mm -hmm. That was my fear. Like I could see it. You know, I would just be, I'd be the classic example, great on stage, not so great on the couch with one other person. Yeah. You know, and I wanted to develop my intimate skills. And I knew that that deep therapy was probably the only way to get there. So I did that deep work and continue to do that deep work. I want to say it's not, it's just not something you check a box and now you're done. And, you know, I, I went through layers and levels and I work with someone now with internal family systems. If you know that work, it's, it's, it's really that we all have parts of ourselves mm. and it's about learning to love and integrate all the parts. Mm. So I started conceiving, I, I went to a group. I, I what, what did I do to start? Well, I was doing, I sort of asked people to be my love mentors. And I would say, could you see me in a partnership? And people would kind of say, well, of course. And then they'd say, and you have some work to do. You know, right. <laughs> as my right. younger brother, Andrew said, you're likely in love with the idea of a partnership, right. but not with the real person, you know, <laughs> like, he was, you know, siblings can say things in a way that's direct and, you know, in a way that other people couldn't. So I just started studying and I went to, um, I, I love looking on the internet. I love, I wish people would ask more things on the internet because I ask everything. People are always saying, how did you find that? Well, I ask, I write the most outrageous things in the search box and yeah. I wrote how to be consciously single and really happy, you know, like, tell me that. And lo and behold, there was a group called consciously single. Right. And so I thought I'm going to go to that group. And so I was really scared, but I went there and in the small breakout groups, I finally managed to say, I would love a great, big, intimate love relationship. And after I said it, I waited for the four or five people in the group to start laughing. I mean, it's so poignant to me now. Like I thought they would laugh at me. Wow. And of course, what they did was say, oh, you can have that. Of course, you are so lovable. We can see it. We know this is you, you have this heart, you, you know, and I thought, you know, okay, okay. And so I went, um, actually, I went on a cruise, a metaphysical cruise. And on the cruise ship, I met Dr. John Waddell. And he was actually shopping for a new love. <laughs> he literally thought of it that way. His, his beloved wife had died nine months before. And he said, I did not want to live the rest of my life out of partnership. And I wanted a high level, incredible person. Mm. 
Mm. And he was interviewing people. And wow. he came to, he, when it came time to, to you know, it's a whole story, of course, how this happened, but we were walking on the promenade deck and he said, I want you to know that I'm qualified to adore you. That's so great. That's so and great. I, I, I just thought, I'm going to marry him. I mean, that, you know, it helped that he was a psychologist. So I felt that he was qual, you know, I felt like, yeah. I liked that he said he was, and I could tell it didn't come from a, it was not, there was not a manipulation in it. Mm -mm. it or just, neat. No, it was just from spirit. And he doesn't, he said he had no idea he was going to say that. And he just said it. And then I said, that's it. And two months later, he moved from Columbus, Ohio, across the country, in with me in San Francisco, where we lived so happily for the next four years, so happily that we decided we wanted to share that love. And he put all of his psychology and I put all of my psychology into this book called Succulent Wild Love, Six Powerful Habits for Feeling Love More Often, Feeling More Love More Often. And then we turned the book into the publisher. And the short version is he had a stomach ache and we went to the hospital and we found out that he had stage four cancer and it was terminal, terminal. And that began a nine month journey of um, healing and exploration and every kind of trying to understand and trying to heal. And then he did die in my arms um, in 2016 in March. Hmm. And it had been my greatest dream to have the love that I shared with John and it had been my biggest fear that what if you love someone and then they just die mm. and what if they need you to take care of them so I used to tease him and say you did two in one I had to take care of you and then you died mm. and that deepest fear became one of my greatest blessings of my whole life because it deepened me it deepened and I mean I'm not recommending this route I'm not recommending this route but I'm saying that the alchemy that I was able to do as a result of John's physical departure if I say death he's right here in my ear saying I'm not dead yeah he's everywhere he yeah. loves mentoring now and anyone listening can call on John and he will help you he's helping people buy houses and do find money and find love and you know, he's just very busy. So, um, you know, and then of course, I want to emphasize it was the deepest devastation I've ever known. I didn't know if I would survive it. Um, and I've never grieved like that. And it was just the, it was, it was, a, it was, the, it was every bit of the nightmare that I was afraid of. And so mm -hmm. I want to emphasize it wasn't just, and then I learned and then it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was, it's Rumi that calls it it was the pick and shovel work it was the deep work of of going through all the would have could have should have all the things I wish I'd said or done all the things I wish he'd said or done all the therapy that had been done all of the alternative medicine and standard medicine things that had been done and all of this and I remember the same wonderful brother of mine Andrew my younger brother who I'm very close to um, said to me I said, Andrew, I don't know how I survived that. And he said, you didn't. He said, you thrived it. Mm. And it was a huge compliment from him. And I, I knew it to be true. Um, I, although it doesn't take away the pain, but it gives meaning. 
and it gives a doorway to, to a new place. And the new place was my asking again for another great love. Because I thought, I, I love this. I loved being in intimate partnership. I didn't know how good I was. I'm, it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm way more suited for it than I knew. And, and, but I want to hasten to say, I wouldn't have been suited for it younger. When, when I was younger, there were way more personality things and things that would have obscured my ability to be intimate and be connected like that. Yeah. So I put it, I, I literally, I hired a love coach and had a wonderful experience, a matchmaker, and had a wonderful experience. I joined something called Calling in the One um, and, and met with a small group for 12 weeks every week and explored the attachment styles and all the things. I became like this laboratory, you know, like what does it take to, you know, at this age and in this stage of my life to, to find and create really another great love. And then I started to feel pressured and like, oh, this is never going to happen. I did some online dating. I met some wonderful men, but none of them were the right, none of them were a match for what I wanted. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to give up and I'm going to date the world. I'm going to date the world. So I wrote, I'm dating the world. And then I wrote this passionate rhapsody about all the ways I was dating the world. I was in the cherry blossoms in Vancouver and I was in a private ranch in Big Sur. And I was, I mean, I had this whole, I was reading poetry in my house lying upside down off of my bed. And I was just in a, in a you know, I was in a love affair with the world. And that email was received um, by a man named David who then called me on the inspiration phone line which is a phone line I started over 25 years ago so that my readers would have a way to communicate with me. Mm. I was being so intimate with them in my books and I felt that they ought to have a place to be intimate with me. And so he had been told about me eight years before by a female friend who said, there's a female version of you and wow. her name is Sark and you need to reach her. So he listened to the inspiration line message and left me a message eight years ago, but I was nowhere near, I would never have been ready for him at that time. So in May of 2018, he called that line, having read, I'm dating the world. And there's a whole story about how he even came to get that email, a completely wild story where he should never have gotten that email, but you know, got that email and called the line and said, hey, I just love how you live. And that's how I live too. He said, like loving the world. And he said, I just, I just love you. He said, I love you. 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 Is this too much? I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Hey, my name's David. Give me a call if you want. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> and I felt like he's either my soulmate or he's someone I might not ever want to talk to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I called on May 21st, I called him back and we talked. I think we laughed for the first five minutes with no subject. I mean, there was such a connection. And then we talked for two hours. He was living at that time in Massachusetts. And, um, we proceeded to talk every day for three months 
and really, really, I mean, in depth, two and a half, three and a half hour calls of every variety and really, really got to know each other. And then we decided that we wanted to meet physically because none of this was on video, it was all on the phone. Mm -hmm. And so we decided we would meet physically. I would go to his house in Massachusetts and we would, we would call it a honeymoon. We would call it our first honeymoon and we would skip the marriage just going straight to the honeymoon. And it wasn't until I was on the plane that it really sunk in that I was going to live with this unknown person in their home for ostensibly two weeks. <laughs> However, we had done a fabulous job. He'd set up his whole lake cottage as a honeymoon suite. And he'd done everything. He'd gotten all my favorite scents, my favorite sheets. Uh, he'd replaced the hot tub water from chlorine, chlorine to bromine. He'd gotten a new canoe paddle. He'd, you know, he'd made it into a Shangri-La. And I had my own room, which was one of my requests. So we did do a good job at setting ourselves up for the best possible first date which was a honeymoon. So. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm listening. And I'm thinking, God, Sark, do you love coach? Because <laughs> I think there will be people watching and listening going, I want to do her relationship course, please. <laughs> really? I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm just developing a course right now about love. And I do private mentor people. And right. I have mentored people about love. So, bet. you know, it's a, it's a good thing. But so I, you know, we, we met at the airport and we were just, it was everything that I'd hoped and that he'd hoped. We, we were vibrating. We could barely stop smiling. We were, the car kind of floated back to the lake cottage. And then by the next morning, I was looking up flights to get out of there. Because mm. I want to make sure people hear, I mean, this is, these, you know, I, I insist on the real stuff. Mm -hmm. And I insist on transparency and vulnerability, and I, I just cannot skim the surface. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was, he had been a Hollywood movie producer for many years, living in Malibu, had gone back to Massachusetts to help his family business and gotten into some difficult things with the family business and really was not in a position to be interacting with me at that, on that, that next day and got in and, and really became um, sort of cold and distant. Mm. And I thought, that's it, you know, mm -hmm. now I'm done. And I went in my room and he came and knocked gently and said, are you in here looking up flights? <laughs> and I said, yes, <laughs> I said, I, you know, and he said, could we get on the phone and talk about this? Because remember the phone is where we'd established our intimacy. Uh, okay, okay. So he's in his room and I'm in my room and we proceed to have a two hour conversation. And we just, we, we learned everything we needed to know. And we created a new way to be together. We both are writers. So we enjoy the morning time by ourselves and then we get together for lunch and then we go apart again. And then we tend to our own alignment first. And then we have a wonderful dinner and perhaps romantic time. So I was, this was what I wanted. I wanted someone that would tend to their own alignment and do their own work so that they're coming to me like a full cup ready to share overflow, which doesn't mean that we can't mentor each other through difficulties sure. because of course we have and do, but this was a whole new world. So that the rest of the stay was everything I'd hoped and everything he'd hoped. 
And he hadn't lived with anyone in a number of years and didn't know how to have his needs be met without making it seem like um, he was ignoring me or telling me to go away or he just needed a little help. And so we've so he moved in um, two and a half years ago to with me in San Francisco. This this makes me think of my wonderful godson um, Jonah, who's now like seventeen. A few years ago, he said to uh, his mother, "Mom, why do all the men move in with Susan? Or why do all the men move for Susan?" That was it. Because in my relationships, for whatever reason, I mean, I think it's San Francisco, and I think it's because I'm staying here. So yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. I, I'm like the magnet that pulls, you know, but um, so we're extremely happy and we're creating together and we're living together and loving together. And it's another great love. And John immediately said, I love David mm. and David loves John. And it's a big, happy family with the non-physical John and the physical David. And, uh, but David's also brought a big, happy family to me. I have two parents, I have his brothers, I have his two children. One of his sons is living with us right now. And so all of my dreams of like what, you know, it isn't just one person. It's like he brought just a constellation. He brought a tribe. He brought, yeah. So good. Wow. It's, it's, it's brilliant. But I also, what I love about it one of the one of my favorite topics and maybe it's and Stephen and I talk about this Stephen's my husband we've been married for three years we've been together for five and a half and we're both each other's longest relationship and um I love the kind of ups and downs of it all and like getting to talk to other couples about how you navigate the tough times versus you know in my 20s it was like uh oh roadblock <laughs> I'll bail or they yeah. bailed on me or, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. cause, cause you know, the, the, that whole story you sold, the romance and of course romance moves in and through, but it's not constant. And if you, if it missed, if it disappears for a while, then there's something that you can, as you have described, reconfigure and learn about and learn from and how to be with each other. It's, it's beautiful. Yes. Yes. And I saw you nodding. I mean, I think that to be, vibrantly romantically in love with yourself and then share that rather than trying to get like like feel like a half empty cup trying to get filled give yeah. me a valentine give me a text do this for me you know when you do those things for yourself and yes i send myself my own texts and tell myself you're you know you're doing great i'm so proud of you and i love you you what know, was the last text you sent yourself? Yes, you can do it. I love it. I love <laughs> it. And earlier this morning, I put on uh, one of your Facebook videos and you were giving yourself a self hug. And I thought, God, I haven't done that for a couple of years. I used to have that in my head, like to do that. And yeah, it was just fantastic. These, these little actions that we take, which I think is so important because my expectation that a lot of viewers or listeners to the show who haven't met you before they will be in that wow she's so vibrant she's so but 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 there are reasons that you are maintaining that and that you are building that and you're you're also deeply honest about when you're not vibrant what you do and I think that's the missing piece still in our society oh it's so and thank heavens it's starting to change 
Exactly. I mean, social media is starting to have some transparency. People are starting to say the tough stuff, the vulnerable stuff, you know, and I, as I said, I've been writing about it all along. I've written about it so extensively in my books that sometimes, you know, people are there in the audience, like, why am I here listening to this, you know, <laughs> listening to this person? Like I see them, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I, I insist, you know, I insist on that because we're, we were not ever supposed to be happy all the time, joyful all the time. All of that, which is now being named as toxic positivity and all of that, which is being named as spiritual bypass, thank heavens, you know, because I am, you know, I get crabby so easily. We just arrived home last night from a vacation and transitions are always can be mm -hmm. challenging you know, came home to all of these mishaps and misunderstandings and things weren't done or things were different than I thought. And I had a complete flip out, you know, and, and because I practice what I teach and do my own feelings care, I'm able to go and do my feelings care without having to act out on the people mm. around me in harmful ways, you know, so that you know, I'm in my room sobbing and writing my feelings, like, how did this happen? What part got triggered? You know, I'm looking for, instead of blame, what what happened to me that I got so affected, so upset, you know? Beautiful. So, yeah. And I think that we just have so much room for everyone to tell the truth faster and to admit the things. And we... It, it, it is in all of our, what everyone finds the most endearing about you is everything you most want to hide. Hmm. And, you know, so I just say to people, let it be seen, let yourself be known. I always say you are seen, you are known, you are loved. And I mean that in its entirety, not just in the shiny, not just the glitter. She wrote 18 books and she's, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm talking about sobbing at 3 a.m. or going to see someone and thinking it was the love of your life and they're cold and distant and you want to leave, you know, that, all that stuff. And again, you know, that, that's what it is to be human and to be human together and be witnessed in that and not live in shame and isolation for fear of being seen mm -hmm. for who you really are. And I maintain that we all can turn the dials down on all of this crazy overachieving and all of this, turn the dials down and find out that no one even really notices. Like, mm -hmm. do you think you're, you know, <laughs> so I have to do it like this and you're just- So people, true. You know, people operate at eight, nine and 10, they can be down at four five and six and do just fine. So true, it's so true. Yeah, and, and I also, it's funny because it takes me back. So I'm talking about, I was 16 years old, almost 30 years ago, 28 years ago. And the Oprah Winfrey show came to the UK or maybe it had been there for a year or two and I just discovered it. And that show to me was food because I'd never felt so nourished by the honesty that Oprah was inviting her audience members to share. Because back then it was very much going yes. into the audience and talking about real life stuff. And especially in England at that time, which was more repressed around emotional expression, this was like a revelation to me, but it was everything I needed. And so I've always found such a solace and comfort in hearing the underneath and the behind versus the 
the the shiny picture um because as you just said someone else or, or even i could say oh you've written 18 books to you i might look at 18 book covers whereas whereas actually you would say yeah i can tell you my life journey that every one of those books represents and who i was and where i was living and you know it's it's so interesting when we focus on the outside without really feeling or knowing what's underneath and yes exactly and then not doing the work not to project or idealize leaders or other people and think that they have answers they may have things to teach and they may have things to mentor you know but they do not have answers for you mm -hmm. and this is what i'm always telling people your intuition I call it inner wise self. I mean, your inner Sark knows everything and people aren't asking. They're not asking this part of themselves. And so I'm always talking about this, ask, ask again, ask differently because I see the results and I see it for myself. And again, to do it imperfectly and badly and poorly and partially, amazing the miracles that can happen. Which goes back to your poster which we've talked about and um we're gonna we're gonna wrap up our conversation in a minute but one thing i'm happy to be able to share with everyone is that you have a gift and it's how to be a happy creator and it's yes. a, a downloadable it. book it's a 37 page full color book of every practice and process that i've been talking about plus some that i didn't talk about including my micro movement method which is a way to get things done, start tinier, start more often mm. and get things done. It has my inner wise self intuition course. It has um, my inner feelings care and it has how to change the dialogue from inner critics to, to a, a more nourishing dialogue, not to get rid of them, not to ignore them, but to live with them, to live with these parts of yourself and not have them be in charge, but instead have you and your intuition be in charge. Beautiful. Lee, thank you for doing a show, Impact the World, which does go underneath. And because people want to hear real people talking about real things. And that's how we learn. We, we don't learn from being told. We learn from being shown. Yeah. And if my life and anything I've said can be any example, I would want it to be, honestly, it comes down to, again, live your dream, share your unique gifts ask, ask again, ask differently and do your transformational work. And, and you know, this is why I'm developing courses now about habits. How do you have the habits that underlie all of this? So I'm taking these, these core teachings and, and doing new courses and I'm just finished a new book. So there's- Yeah, congratulations. Cause you said you've just finished the first draft. And I know that a book is a big thing and it's called Living Mostly Wonderful, The Surprising Gifts of Terrible Things. It's so good. Yes, yes. There's so many terrible things and so many wonderful things. And we can become really alchemists and blend the two together into a brand new mixture for healing and change. And then that can be shared. And it's, it's so exciting. And I love the resilience and the magnificence of human spirit. Mm. And I love being um, in this life, of this life, and also being able to bring things from other realms um, through the spirit of Sark and really show people that the spirit of Sark is them too. Well, I love your vulnerability. I love your brilliance and I love your courage. 
oh. and, and all all the other facets of you that you know that we got to just have a tiny taste of today but i know anybody who's watching or listening who wasn't familiar with you i'm i'm sure they're gonna now be checking out the things you do but also taking away from this just the the reality that we can all create anything for ourselves if we put our mind to it and we take the tiny steps whether it is a book or whether it's just a new way of life or whether it's asking for love to come into your life and, and letting the results surprise you and i would add mind body heart and spirit because if you stay you know this if we just go with our mind it's not going to be the full picture but if we involve all those other parts of myself and then i forgot i made a note to tell you that i am reopening my magical mentoring private mentoring program in february uh, soon so i have i think i have space right now for we we already have waiting lists and i think i have six spaces left Fantastic. so I'm, okay. I'm very excited about that great and this can be found uh, along with everything at planetsark.com your website yes Brilliant. yes or or i don't know if there's a different link you know they don't let me they don't let me get involved in where the links go <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great well we'll put a link to planetsark.com and we'll also put a second link to this wonderful gift book that i'm going to go and download um how to be um, a happy creator and i just want to say one last thing to you which is just i'm curious because you're in the creative process right now what do you think your book needs next? Or what are you calling in next for, for oh, this thank stage you. of the book? Thank you. I love that so much. I think I'm calling in a brand new publishing process. Mm. And it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while. I haven't published traditionally since 2015. Mm. And I'm there's some new ways that I'm turning the wonderful dials and steering the, the spaceship. <laughs> are we allowed to know what these ways are? No, but you, you, if, <laughs> if you sign up, yeah, they could, if you sign up for my magic blog, I'll definitely announce it in there. I do a public, I do a magic blog once a week. So Brilliant. It, I'll be, you know, announcing and sharing. Um, oh, and it, well, it, it's going to be a really, it's, it's exciting because if it works as I intended it will, it will help all the other creators too. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you and good luck. And uh, you, hey, keep asking, ask differently, ask. Yeah, I'm sure I have no doubt that you're going to be sharing it with us soon. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. You, you, this has been a delight for me personally. And I know for, for the people who tune into the show. Um, so thank you for who you are and what you bring to the world. You're one of those people that, that just, make me happy that you exist oh thank you lee that's that's just how i feel about you and thank you for being you and doing your work in this world it's a huge benefit and transformational quantum shifter you know thank you we're all in it together right we're all doing what we doing our little bit and uh that way we become one one tribe on the planet so yeah yeah well, lots of love, Sark. Thank you for Thank being you. here. And to everyone who tuned in, you can visit planetsark.com to find all of Sark's work. And we'll also put links in the show notes as usual, including to where you can download Sark's wonderful 37-page book, How to Be a Happy Creator. Big love, everyone. And thank you for tuning in today. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Impact the World. And if you want to go deeper and more in depth with my work, you should check out my members group, The Portal. You can find it at my website, leeharrisenergy.com or visit theportal.world.